Hi, welcome to the CNAS podcast series. My name is Rachel Rizzo, and I am the research associate for the Transatlantic Security Program here at CNAS. And I'm Harry Kresa, the Basevich Fellow here at CNAS. So we are here today because Harry, just last week, published a brand new report called Heartland Security. In this report, Harry argues that since World War II, the U.S. has designed their domestic and foreign policy in sync with one another, which has empowered workers to capitalize on globalization and the U.S.-led international order. And around the 1980s, though, domestic and foreign policy diverged, and workers felt like they were left behind, which in turn damaged the legitimacy of American internationalism in the eyes of U.S. voters. And this is where we are today, where there is a split between the elites, the global elites, as as they've come to be called, and the rest of of the United States. And so this report sort of highlights how the U.S. should be approaching U.S. um, domestic and foreign policy today. So, Harry, will you explain a little bit where the genesis of this report came from and some of the uh, suggestions that you have in it? Absolutely. So about a year ago, the Trump administration was still new, and one of the first major foreign policy figures that they nominated was Iowa Governor uh, Terry Branstad to be the ambassador to China. And uh, coming from Iowa myself, uh, I was familiar with Mr. Branstad and uh, was, you know, struck with a little bit, at least a little bit of hometown pride at the announcement, but then quickly noticed that for about Two or three hours, Twitter had been taken over by uh, a mob of people, you know, decrying the pick, saying, "What does this boring governor from a landlocked state know about China? Our most important uh, geopolitical relationship in probably for the next century." And uh, after that first, you know, uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction, people started to look at his Wikipedia page and uh, read more about him and realize, oh, uh, this is actually a pretty good choice for governor. I realized at that point that there was really a big disconnect between the sort of traditional foreign policy establishment, as you might think of it, a New York or D.C.-based community, and the like large amounts of talent and political actors outside of that community. And of course, that paled in comparison to what seems to be the divide between those elites and uh, everyday voters and members of the public outside of that New York and D.C. circuit. And so I ended up doing some uh, speaking engagements and research trips out to my home state of Iowa and other small towns and rural states uh, around the country over the last uh, year or so to have conversations about internationalism and where uh, the elite opinion might diverge from local opinion. So when you look at U.S. foreign policy today, many people around the United States think that globalization and policies that have sprung up through globalization, um, the benefits of that have stopped reaching the middle class, which is sort of what you talk about in your report. How do we remedy that? I mean, what is, what is the way forward here? The big issue here is that the economy as we know it has changed and the tools 
and methods that we used to think of as, uh, as keeping American workers dynamic and prepared for that modern economy have been left to rust. Uh, since roughly about the 1980s, uh, American incomes have started stagnating in real inflation-adjusted terms. Uh, you see globalized companies uh, enjoying record profits from the 1980s through today, and uh, American workers are more productive than they have ever been. They're working harder, they're working smarter, and they're producing more value for their employers than ever before. But since about the 1980s, their share of wages have started to diverge from that growth and productivity. And so globalization, trade, international engagement generally is still making the United States as a whole unquestionably wealthier. Mm -hmm. But those gains, as you said, aren't reaching the workers who are producing uh, that new value in this globalized marketplace. And you say that's because our domestic policies are not as robust as they used to be, meaning that those benefits are no longer reaching American workers. Right. The, in the decades after World War II, when, which we associate with meteoric gains in, in middle-class living standards and economic mobility uh, that kind of define the American dream as we know it, that was not inevitable. That was not some sort of natural outgrowth of where the U.S. system was in the, uh, in the mid, middle of the 20th century. It was because of deliberate ambitious policymaking by both domestic and foreign policy elites to make globalization and the modern economy pay off for middle-class Americans. And so I think we need to look back at what tools were available at the time and why they worked and how those tools can be adapted for modern use today. So what tools were available at those times? What did we use? Well, we were very focused on human capital in a way that almost no other countries in the world were at the time. Uh, before World War II, we were the only country in the world that had engaged in universal secondary education as a, a major policy goal. We were lapping our closest competitors in Europe in this area. And so by the time that it, it came for the United States to step up as a major of post-war recovery, we already had the most educated and equipped workforce in the world. And when lawmakers were drafting the GI Bill, we had a public that could dramatically expand its capacity for college access because they already had high school degrees in such huge numbers. So we, we have lost that emphasis on the importance of human capital since then. And I think that we shouldn't just take that huge increase in access to college as a one-time given from the middle of the century, we should learn the lessons of that and adapt that for the future. Yeah, definitely. So you said before that you are from Iowa. Indeed. And you moved to D.C. and you've been working here for the past few years. When you go back home and you talk to your family and your friends, what do they say about the growing disconnect between D.C. and, and the rest of America? A lot of my friends and family in Iowa, they agree with uh, much of the sort of traditional foreign policy consensus on specific issues. They understand the importance of alliances to securing the world and against aggression. They understand that with 95% of the world's customers outside our borders, we probably can't throw up walls and pretend that we can have a, our, our own little isolated economy. 
but the their trust in policymakers out here is so low that even though they might agree with a lot of that consensus there is uh, there is an appetite for alternative points of view and I think that this uh, you know was thrown into stark relief during the 2016 election where you know the uh, the most of the Republican field were very traditionalist about their foreign policy views. They might have struck a, a more hawkish tone than uh, than uh, the median Democrat might have. But the eventually victorious Republican nominee was openly skeptical about the value of alliances and uh, that and, and internationalism generally. And that's mm-hmm. actually out of step with the opinion of most Americans. But he uh, kind of capitalized, when, of course, talking about President Trump, yeah. <laughs> uh, capitalized on this distrust of elite opinion, even though those opinions are shared uh, by you know the the vast majority of the general public. It's it, it seems to be a lack of trust that I think arises from the fact that internationalism as we know it has stopped paying off for most Americans. And I, Rachel, you're you're from Utah yourself, which is similarly distant from the East Coast uh, elite establishment. Yes, we are way out west. <laughs> Do you did you find similar experiences when you go back home? Yeah, I mean, Utah is interesting because you have this very liberal little dot which is um Salt Lake City. But it's like a donut, right? You have the, the the blue dot in the middle surrounded by a lot of red. And as you get farther and farther outside of the city center in Salt Lake, um, it, it gets redder and redder. The the interesting thing about about Utah in general is that you have it's it's a very very red state. It's a very religious state, um, but it's a very global state as well. You know the 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 majority of Utahns are um, Latter-day Saints, so uh, come from the Mormon religion, and many of them spend a couple years doing Mormon missions outside of Utah in their late teen years. So uh, my boss, Julie Smith, and I just went back to Salt Lake City for a new project that we're doing called Across the Pond in the Field, where over the next three years, we're traveling around the United States, not on the coasts, um, all through the through middle America. And we're having, you know, foreign policy conversations with folks outside of outside of the uh, the coasts. And so we went back to Salt Lake. And while we were in Trump country, I mean, Utah voted for Trump. It was a very pro-trade, pro-alliance, pro-NATO, pro-Europe group of people. And so while there still is a disconnect, I think, um, I think most people are more globalist than today we are led to believe. I agree with you 100%. I think that most people, when thinking about the crisis on the Korean Peninsula, they they don't think the solution is to pull all of our troops out of South Korea. And they don't think that the the way to restart middle class income growth mm-hmm. is to cut ourselves off from the world. Yeah. But man, the, the question is, uh, how does the rubber actually hit the road? And these are these are going to require difficult and uh, uh, wrenching policy decisions and trade-offs. And that's going to require trust 
from the public for the policymakers and elites who are putting those ideas and plans together. And so, uh, do you find as you're going out into this this really cool uh, across the pond and in the field project that uh, as people do understand uh, the issues and you have these uh, strikingly cosmopolitan communities outside of the sort of East Coast elite that I don't think the East Coast elite necessarily uh, uh, understands fully. Yeah. Is there, uh, do you think that there is sufficient trust to do that? Or is that, a, is that the primary hurdle we're talking about? I think that is one of the primary hurdles. But I do think that it's, it's getting better. I think after Trump won, D.C., in, in specifically D.C., was, was in shock. I mean, a lot of people were in shock, right? And it just brought to light the, the mistrust and the disconnect between communities. And I think more and more people are realizing that the longer that we don't have conversations with one another, the longer that, you know, DC pol policymakers stay in DC and make policy and don't get out into the United States and talk to different communities, the, the more that that distrust is going to grow and the longer it's going to last. And so while I do think that the disconnect is 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 lessening through through these outreach programs. Um, I I still don't think that we have the same level of effort as we did, say, you know, during the Cold War. I absolutely agree with you, and I know uh, during the Cold War. The, there were many efforts to try and have more two-way information sharing and conversations about the difficulty of crafting foreign and domestic policy together. The Council on Foreign Relations used to have a sort of constellation of local councils throughout the country in small and mid-sized cities that were formal parts of the organization that would carry on these conversations and provide not only a, a sort of uh, outward conduit from the New York base of, uh, of the council, but also uh, a way to collect information and input from people who weren't living in uh, that East Coast policy elite. And similarly, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee used to have these roving hearings where they would have public discussions about the importance of uh, of the resisting the the spread of communism and and confronting the Soviet Union and the sort of uh, important community stakeholdership that would come with this designing those policies. And I think that you know part of the the problem today is that. We don't have a monolithic challenge like the Soviet Union. The world is more complicated and our problems are, are more complicated. But also, uh, I don't think we're speaking honestly about uh, why that same model isn't working anymore. That the same, you know, we're still getting a lot of wealth pouring into this country by nature of our global engagement, but the, the, the domestic policies necessary to make sure that pays off for middle-class Americans aren't keeping up. And foreign policy elites need to own that as a failure of their own and not just their domestic policy comrades. Absolutely. I think that's probably the hardest part is, is owning that and having tough conversations about what needs to change. You know, if something doesn't work in the past, is it going to work in the future? And I think, you know, history shows that we might need, we need to change the way we do some things mm -hmm. going forward. Well, I hope everyone takes 
an hour out of their day to read Harry's new report, Heartland Security. It's well worth the time. It's timely. It's well-written, and there are some excellent ideas in there. And um, I think it's it adds a lot to the conversation today. So, Harry, thanks for taking a few minutes to, to chat today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rachel.